Hi, this is Nir Eyal, author of Indistractable, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Nir Eyal. Nir co-founded and sold two technology companies, and the MIT Technology Review called him the prophet of habit-forming technology. He's the author of two best-selling books, the first being Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Indistractable received critical acclaim, winning Outstanding Literature, Works of Literature Award, as well as being named one of the best business and leadership books of the year by Amazon. In addition to blogging at Near and Far, that's N-I-R and F-A-R, Near's writing has been featured in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, and Psychology Today. Near's been an active investor in habit-forming technologies. He's advised and invested in companies including Everbright, Anchor FM, Kahoot, Canva, and more. Near attended the Graduate School of Business at Stanford and Emory University. He lives in Singapore and is here to talk about his book, Indistract. How to control your attention and choose your life. Welcome, Nir. Thank you so much, Bill. Great to be here. Great to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, Nir, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? So I would say probably the biggest influence in my life was definitely my parents. I know it's a generic answer, but I think there's a special story there. They basically picked up shop and moved to the United States to pursue the American dream. And I came to the United States on my third birthday. And that was my birthday present to coming to America. I greatly value my American citizenship and love the country. And even though now I'm, I split my time between Singapore and, and the United States, the United States is, is, is really where I consider myself being from, even though I wasn't born there. And uh, the fact that my parents came to America risking it all and uh, dropping everything to pursue a better life really inspired me uh, throughout my life. And then you know, seeing how they struggled, they, they came to America, they started a small business, they got taken advantage of by some Americans who had ill intent and they basically trusted these folks and they got scammed and they lost almost everything. Thing. They were thinking about moving back and uh, they decided to stick it out and start another business. And seeing their struggle along the way really inspired me to start my own companies and to become an entrepreneur myself. That's a really interesting choice that you made to start your own companies after seeing the struggle and the all of the extra work that goes into being a business owner. Because as everyone knows, when you're in business for yourself, it means that you'd rather work 80 hours a week for yourself than 40 hours or 50 hours a week for someone else. What is it that really let you know that? That this was something that would be a pursuit that you would find rewarding or that you would want to try to do it differently because of the challenges that you observe very close up with your parents. So I, I remember I used to come home from school and go to my father's office, which was the way home on the way home from school. I would stop by his office and it was just like a little little office complex that you could walk into is very close to the the condominium complex that we lived in. And I remember I would spend time there just doing my homework and waiting for him to finish work. And then we'd walk home together. And I, I remember the way that that people who he worked with and who worked and, and watching how people who worked for him appreciated him. He seemed to bring out the best in people. Not always. I, he wasn't perfect. But I, I remember how much it seemed like people who he worked with and how the people who worked for him really admired him. Him and what a positive impact he had in their life through his leadership. He was always such a diplomat. And I remember him sharing with me many of the trials and tribulations that he was going through, starting a business and, and having servicing his clients and keeping his clients happy, keeping employees happy. And I, I remember having a very cleared eye view of the fact that 
even though he was the boss, his employees were really his boss. His customers were really his boss. His investors were really his boss. His partners were really his boss. And that le left a really deep impression. On what was the type of business near? Uh, so he was in the he was in the real estate business, and then he also was in uh, he was a distributor for a product that was manufactured in Israel on a kibbutz, a plastic solar heating product for pools. Wow, ahead of his time with solar power. Yeah. If if you were thinking about the philosophy, maybe one of the philosophies that drove him, how would you sum up some of his philosophy towards life or business? I remember I remember he had a very rational view of money. In that he both my parents, I, I say he because he had the official title, but I want to give my mother just as much credit that she was definitely behind every decision. Every big decision was she was a part of as well. But I remember both of them had a very rational view of money in that they were not flashy people and they always instilled in us a sense of not being ostentatious with your wealth, not not being conspicuous with how much you have, that that's not real wealth, that it's only the, the, the people who don't really appreciate money are the ones who flash it around because money is not about what you have. Money is about the freedom it buys. And I remember my parents teaching me that lesson. That's what money is for, freedom to choose what you'd like to do with your time. And I think that left a pretty profound impression on me because I think it instilled in me an understanding that time is really what we're making here. That when we make money so that we can turn it into time, that's the difference between a wage slave and someone who can choose their own course. Not that people who start their own businesses somehow get an easy pass and, and don't have to work as hard. Every one of your listeners know how, how knows how hard it is to run a business. It's incredibly difficult, especially when you're just getting started. So it's not about taking working harder or working easier. It's not about any of that. It's about the ability to have your own agency, the, the ability to make your own decisions, the freedom that it brings you to choose your own path. That's really what you're buying with money. Yeah. And that's something that's so important is to understand the freedom of choice. Now, near as you were growing up and maybe after college, we're in a first job. Did you always have the idea or the ambition to start your own company? I, I remember I always had, I was always occupying my time with trying to find ways to, to make money here and there. I walked dogs in the neighborhood. I would I, almost every weekend growing up, I was washing someone's car in my neighborhood. We lived in a condo complex, so everybody lived really close to each other in Central Florida, which is unusual. Most people around us, like the rich people, had houses. We, we lived in a condo, like a townhouse, but which made it really easy because you could just knock on fifty doors in in an hour or two, and somebody would have something for you to do growing up. So whether it was walk their dog, wash their car, clean up their attic, do something for them. So I, I spent a lot of time doing that growing up, and I don't know if I thought I would be an entrepreneur per se, but I did I did always value this idea of the fact that, that money could buy freedom. And I think that's why I've been so fascinated by what I study today, which is how to manage your time. There's no coincidence that the same language we use to describe money is the language we use to describe time. We make money just like we make time. We spend money just like we spend time with someone. We pay attention just like we pay with dollars and cents. And so that's why I, I really believe believe that understanding how to control your time, how to control your attention is the skill of the century that as technology, for example, becomes more pervasive and more persuasive, especially for business owners out there, the hardest part of your day is to figuring out what to pay attention to. There's a million things you could do with your time. The most important job that you have as a business owner is figuring out what to prioritize. How should you spend your limited time and attention? You can always make more money. You can't make more time. Every Everybody has the same 24 hours in the day. And so that is the entrepreneur's most important asset is how do they spend their time and attention? It's very true. And it's, a, it's an important distinction to make that we can't create more time. 
one of the things that you're that you point out in the book is that you say that people who study how to be indistractable because they recognize the value of placing your attention will superficially think that the opposite of indistractable is focus. And you point out that it's traction. Describe the difference and give us some idea of how you know that you're actually making progress with traction versus being distracted. Yeah, so it's a great place to start is to understand our terminology, right? What are we talking about when we say that we get distracted? What does that word distraction even mean? It's a word that I thought I understood until I started this line of research. And then when I actually asked myself, wait a minute, what is the word distraction really mean? The best way to test yourself if what the what a word really means is to ask yourself, do you know the antonym of that word? What's the opposite of that term? Most people, if you ask them, what's the opposite of distraction, will tell you, obviously, it's focus, right? The opposite of distraction is focus. But that's not exactly right. That if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of track uh, of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us, but rather it is an action we take. And both words, traction and distraction, come from the same Latin root, tre, which means to pull. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction, of course, is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you plan to do, further away from your goals, further away from your values, and further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. Okay, so is this just semantics? What's the big deal? Why does this matter? This is incredibly important because I would argue any action can be an attraction or distraction based on one word, and that one word is forethought. That a lot of times you hear today in the media that, oh, technology is melting our brains, technology is evil technology, the, you know, social media, this and that, and our iPhones are hijacking our brains. Rubbish. Silly. It's not scientific. I've spent five years researching it, and I will tell you it's nothing more than media hype, old media getting upset that their business model is being disrupted by new media. Do not believe this moral panic. If you want to play a video game, if you want to watch a YouTube video, if you want to go on social media, go for it. Don't listen to these professors stuck in their ivory towers telling you, oh, don't use social media, and they don't even have a social media account. That's ridiculous. There's so much that you can do for your small business by engaging these technologies. It's not the technology that's the problem. If you want to use these technologies and you do so with intent, it is by definition traction, not distraction. Conversely, any action that is not what you plan to do is a distraction. And that's what we should be worried about. We shouldn't be worried about, oh, I check Facebook too much or I check my kids are on video games. That's not really the problem. The real problem, let me tell you, the real problem is we sit down at our desks and we say, okay, what do I have to do today? Oh, okay, I've got my to-do list here. I've got a hundred things to do on it. And here's that one project I've been putting off. Let me get to work on it right now. That's going to be the first thing I do. That big project I've been procrastinating on, nothing's going to get in my way. Here I go. I'm going to get started right now. But first, let me check some email. Has that ever happened to anybody? Let me just scroll that Slack channel, make sure everything's okay at work. Let me just do a few things of these easy tasks on my to-do list before I start doing the hard work just to get warmed up in the morning. And we don't realize that is the most dangerous form of distraction. The distraction that tricks us into prioritizing the urgent and the easy work at the expense of the hard and important work that we have to do to move our businesses and our life forward. So just checking email for a quick sec, even though it feels productive, it's a worky task, it is still 
a distraction. And it's the biggest form of distraction, the most nefarious form of distraction, because it has tricked you and you don't even realize it's happening. So anything that is not done with intent, anything that is not what you plan to do in advance is distraction. Everything else, anything that you plan to do with your time based on your schedule, your values is traction. And it's imperative that we know what is traction and what is distraction for every minute of our day. That is the only way we can live out our goals, live out our values, become the kind of people we want to become and achieve the kind of business success that we know we deserve. So let's talk about this in the context of managing employees and running a business. You started and sold, successfully exited two businesses. How did you build a culture? What's one example of how you built a culture around the idea? And I may be out of out of timing with this if you hadn't applied these yet, but were there ideas that you applied when you were building those companies that were maybe the precursors of this distinction between distraction and traction? So I started and sold those companies well before I wrote this book, but boy, do I wish I would have had this book beforehand. Because look, your job as a startup founder, as a CEO, as someone who manages other people, you really only have one job. And I bet you, you don't know what it is. Your one job, your only job is to prioritize. That's it. Everything else is details. You have to be able to prioritize effectively. That is, as a person who is quote unquote in charge, that's your most important and arguably your only job. Then you can talk about how do you execute on those priorities. But if you can't prioritize correctly, here's what's going to happen. And I see people like this every single day. I'm sure you have too. People who are so busy, they're working so hard, they're running so fast in the wrong direction because they don't take time to properly prioritize. So let me tell you how to do it. Okay. So I want to give you, I don't like when you listen to a podcast interview and the book author has all the secrets that he won't share with you. All that coyness. Exactly. I'm going to give it to you right now, whether you buy the book or not. Of course, there's a lot more in the book to actually help you apply these techniques. But look, I spent five years researching and writing this book. And the reason it took me five years was because I kept getting distracted. I'll be very honest with you. I didn't have the answer. I was looking for the answer. And I have read virtually all the research, all the books, all the gurus and techniques out there around time management and self-control and willpower. And I've boiled everything down to these four seminal tactics, these four pillars that I didn't make up. These are based on decades of peer-reviewed studies. I hate these self-help books and business books that say, oh, it worked for me. It's going to work for everyone. No. Show me the studies. I want to see the peer-reviewed journals. And so there's 30 pages of citations to cite what I'm about to tell you. And one of the most important things you can do, it, psychologists tell us, is set an implementation intention. Now, that's just a fancy way of saying planning out what you are going to do and when you are going to do it. One of the worst mistakes that people make out there when it comes to their personal productivity is running their life on a to-do list. To-do lists are killing people's productivity. Why? Let me tell you why to-do lists are horrible. Number one, nobody I've ever met in my five years of researching the psychology of distraction, nobody I've ever met who keeps a to-do list consistently finishes everything on their to-do list. Have you ever met anybody who's, who finishes everything on their to-do list? Never. Not if it's a meaningful to-do list. Right. Why is that? Because to-do lists have no constraints. We can add more and more and we have this limitless to to-do list, which is its own problem. There's no constraints. But here's the real rub. Here's what really happens. We come home from work and we have a to-do list a mile long that we still haven't really finished everything on our to-do list. And then we say to ourselves, hey, geez, I still haven't finished what I said I was going to do. And what you are doing day after day, week after week, month after month, every time you look at that to-do list that still you haven't finished what you said you were going to finish, you are reinforcing your self-image as someone who does not live with personal integrity. You are confirming 
confirming that you are okay with lying to yourself day in and day out. And so what does your brain begin to register? Your brain begins to register that you are not the kind of person who can be trusted upon. Loser. You start believing this narrative that you are incapable. And so I hear this all the time. Oh, I'm not good at time management. I have a short attention span. Blah, blah, blah. Excuse after excuse that people have internalized. Not because there's anything wrong with them. They're perfectly wonderful. It's that this technique, this stupid to-do list technique is broken. It's not you that's broken. It's the technique that's broken. So as opposed to running your life on a to-do list, what you have got to do is start time boxing. Time boxing is a well-studied technique. Literally thousands of studies have shown that by simply planning out what you are going to do and when you are going to do it based on your values, okay? What are values are attributes of the person you want to become. So what you've got to do, and this takes literally 15 minutes a week, you have got to sit down and decide for yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And I walk you through how to do this with your three life domains. You are at the center of these three life domains, then your relationships, then your work. And by sitting down and asking yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time in these three life domains? This is how you turn your values into time. You know, so many of us, we talk the talk. These are my values. Oh, I value my health. Oh my gosh, that's so important. My health is very important to me. Do you have a bedtime? Do you have time for exercise? Do you have time to meditate, prayer? Hey, video games, you want to play video games? No problem. Do you have that time in your schedule to take care of you, the most important person in your life? Most people don't. Then your relationships. Do you have time to invest in the important people in your life? We Most people do not make time for their friends and their family. They give their friends and family whatever scraps of time are left over after everybody else has been taken care of in the world. Then we worry about our spouse, our kids, our friends. And then we wonder, why is there a loneliness epidemic in this country? Why is there a 50% divorce rate? Part of it is that we don't invest in the important relationships in our life. We know that Americans are some of the loneliest people on earth. Why? Because from for the past 50 years, the amount of time that we spend booking time with our friendships has declined precipitously. And this isn't something that social media created. This has been happening for decades now. The, the last domain, let me just finish up these three domains, the work domain. And this is where I, I know your listeners are going to be super interested here, people starting small businesses. There are two kinds of work. We have reactive work and we have reflective work. Reactive work is exactly what it sounds like. It's reacting to emails, reacting to meetings, reacting to phone calls. And it's what most people do with the majority of their day. They think they constantly have to be on call and they don't make any time for the reflective work. Reflective work is the only kind of work that allows you to be creative, allows you to plan, allows you to strategize. And most people don't do it. You know why? Because the average person hates thinking. The average person would rather be told in their email inbox, on their SMS messages, in Slack, on their phone, what am I supposed to do with my brain rather than making the time to think? And let me give you the secret of secrets. If you want to lap your competition, if you want to beat out people in your space, if you want to make your company and yourself the best possible version you can make them, make time to think because nobody's doing it. Nobody's putting time in their schedule, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, to think in silence with yourself without distraction. And I promise you, if you make that time in your calendar, I'm not saying do it all day, if you are not making time to think in your day, you are losing out on a huge opportunity, but that has to be scheduled. So that's a very important tactic. Yeah, I remember in your book, you wrote about a, a study where people were put in a room 
and only sitting at a table with a buzzer, a device on the table that would give them shocks. And they were told just to sit in the room and think. And what is it that people chose to do? <laughs> just at remarkable numbers. Instead of just sit there and think, they eventually did what? Yeah. So it turns out, so all they didn't even ask people to do anything. They just said, sit here in this room and there's this strap on your arm. And they told them, if you push this button, the button will send an electrical shock to your arm. That will hurt. They told them it will be painful. And they said, just sit in this room. That's all you got to do. Two thirds of men, one third of women chose to shock themselves rather than experience the boredom of doing nothing. So this leads us to a very important insight. So we talked about traction and distraction. Traction is any action that moves you closer to what you say you're going to do. Distraction is anything else. What we didn't talk about are the triggers, okay? There are two kinds of triggers, things that prompt us to traction or distraction. The first type of trigger is called an external trigger. These are the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, all the things in the outside environment that lead us to traction or distraction, right? It's the beep the buzzes, the boops, we know all these external triggers. But it turns out, studies find, that is only 10% of the time that we get distracted. Did you know that 10% of the time you check your phone, only 10% are you checking it because of an external trigger, some kind of notification, a ping, ding, a ring, 10%. So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time we check our phones is not because of an external trigger, but rather it is because of an internal trigger. What is an internal trigger? An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape escape from. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. This is the number one reason we get distracted. So this is incredibly important. We have got to understand this. Time management is pain management. Let me say that again. Write this down if you can. Time management is pain management. I don't care what books you've read, what gurus you've listened to, what tips and tricks, what life hacks you've read, none of it will work. None of it will work unless we don't, unless we address this seminal fact that time management is pain management. That if we don't know how to deal with discomfort, whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, we will always find distraction somewhere unless we know how to deal with our feelings. That is the big insight of my book, that it's not the technology, people. It's not Facebook. It's not the outside world. It's not what's going on outside of us. It's what is happening inside of us. And if we don't learn how to control these uncomfortable sensations, they will control us. This idea of distraction and operating against our better intentions has been around for a long time. In fact, Aristotle and Socrates would talk about akrasia, and it was our tendency to, to do actions against our better judgment. And ancient Greeks were just prone to that kind of weakness, and they attribute it to a, a weakness or lack of will. Now, our fact checkers have determined that this took place before Mark Zuckerberg released Facebook. <laughs> so what do people need to do today to get to the other side, where they take control of coming to grips with feeling uncomfortable and making choices about how to deal with it or reframe it that are more productive and healthy? Yeah, so step one is mastering the internal triggers, that we need to realize the reason we get distracted is not because we're broken. It's not because there's something wrong with us. It's simply that we haven't learned how to deal with discomfort in a healthy manner that leads us towards traction rather than 
than distraction, partially because we have been told by the self-help industry that the ultimate goal is to be happy all the time. No, that's not the goal. We've been told that somehow if we feel the slightest discomfort, if things are hard, if things are difficult, then we're not fulfilling our purpose, that we need to only pursue our passions in life. And it's such a crock. It's so not true that what we have to do, rather than expecting to be happy and satisfied all the time, which is the road to ruin, we need to rather learn how to deal with discomfort. That feeling bad is not bad. It's a signal. It can be used as rocket fuel to propel us forward. If you look at great entrepreneurs, they take that discomfort. They use that disquietude, that wanting, that longing that they feel inside them. They use that to propel them towards acts of traction. Whereas what most people do when they feel the slightest discomfort, boredom, anxiety, stress, you know what they do? They escape. Let me just check email real quick because that'll tell me what to do with my brain. Let me just take a shot real quick of some kind of drink to ease my nerves. Let me just turn on the TV. Let me watch the news so I can worry about somebody's problems thousands of miles away as opposed to thinking about what's happening in my own life. So the first step has to be mastering the internal triggers. When we're talking about mastering the internal triggers, I'm sure there have been leaders of companies you've invested in that could benefit from this. And I think that timeline is more um, associated with what you've, since the research on distraction. What's an example of one of the leaders, and maybe just use a first name if you want, but a leader who you've worked with, who you've been able to help under, uh, help teach how to master the discomfort so that they use it to as fuel rather than as justification for getting off track. Sure. Yeah. I invested in uh, in dozens of companies and I, I've consulted for many companies on how to become indistractable. And for what we find is that we have to reprogram the narrative that we tell ourselves. So for many entrepreneurs, they have this myth that if they don't feel good, then something's broken, something's wrong. And of course, we need to listen to those signals. But just because we feel bad doesn't necessarily mean it is a bad thing. So I'll tell you a very personal story about myself as opposed to making it about someone else. Before COVID, I was a professional speaker. Of course, I haven't done many conferences and professional speaking since uh, since COVID. But up until COVID, I was on the road at least twice a month giving some talk to thousands of people. And when I started giving talks, I was very afraid to get on stage. I would have this stage fright. I would I, I would feel my heart racing. My armpits would get all sweaty. I would start getting really nervous that people were going to tell that I wasn't well prepared, that maybe I was going to mess up. And I would have this terrible stage fright right before I get on stage. And I started researching how to master these internal triggers. And this is just one example of an internal trigger that all I wanted to do was escape. I kept wishing. I remember I would about to get on stage when I first started out and I would always tell myself, oh, I hope the AV system crashes. That'd be great. So I don't have to get on stage. And then I started changing the narrative. I started changing the narrative, not looking for escape, but rather trying to do what I call reimagine the internal trigger. And to reimagine the internal internal trigger, I started changing the narrative around what I was feeling. So rather than, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. I'm going to do so poorly. If I was a real public speaker, I wouldn't feel nervous. As opposed to these ridiculous narratives that there was something wrong with me, I started to reimagine the internal trigger to tell myself this. Okay, great. My heart is racing right now because my body is preparing me to give this talk by pumping more oxygen to my brain. And that is helping me raise my game so that I can give my best possible talk. So by changing that narrative, to change the narrative, so for example, now I'm an author and that's what I've been doing for the past several years. And so every day I have to write. And look, writing is really hard work. Don't let anybody tell you that writing can never become a habit. It never becomes effortless. It is really hard, at least for me it is. And so all I wanna do when I'm writing is go check email, go Google something, go do anything but the thing I know I need to have, I need to do. So instead of telling myself, oh, if I was a real writer, I would just enjoy writing. Why don't I enjoy 
enjoy writing? Why is it difficult? Instead, I tell myself, I change the narrative. I say, you know why this is difficult? Because I'm paving new ground here. This is new territory. That of course it's difficult because what I'm writing about has never been written about in this way before. And to make something scarce, to make a, a rare commodity, it has to be, require hard work. And that's great because that means other people are not willing to put in the hard work. So I show you step-by-step step how to reimagine this narrative that we have with ourselves, to reimagine the triggers so that they can serve us as opposed to hurt us. And that's the first step is to reimagine the triggers. What are the next two, please? Sure. So there's several techniques around internal triggers. So reimagine the trigger, reimagine the task, reimagine your temperament. But that's all under that one heading of mastering internal triggers. The second big step is about making time for traction. That's what we talked about a little bit earlier around how do we stop running our life on a to-do list and rather start looking at a schedule. Because the only way to know that you got distracted is to know what you got distracted from. This is a huge lesson from the book. You can not call something a distraction unless you know what you got distracted from. So every day I hear from people who say, oh, I didn't get enough done today. I'm so distracted. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I, I, I can't get everything done. There's so much to do. And then I say, wait a minute, what did you plan to do with your time that you didn't get, that you didn't do? What did you get distracted from? Let me see your calendar. And the vast majority of people out there don't keep a calendar. Maybe they keep a dentist appointment, doctor appointment or something, but they don't make that time as we talked about earlier, based on their values. We're all so cheap with our money, but we're, we give time to whoever wants it. Our customers, customers, our colleagues, the news, Twitter, I just take my time, take my attention. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, that's the one commodity that we should be very cheap with. We should be generous with our money. We should be cheap with our time because you cannot make more time. You can always make more money. So making time for traction is step number two. Very important. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what you got distracted from. Step number three is to hack back the external triggers. So this is the most kind of practical area of the book where I show you step by step how to to get rid of all of those external triggers that we talked about earlier, the pings, the dings, the rings that don't serve us. And of course, it's so easy. Believe it or not, two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Really? We're really going to say we got distracted by our phones when you haven't even taken five minutes to turn off your notifications. And that's that's kindergarten stuff. You don't need to buy a book to tell you to do that. Of course, you need to do that. What I wanted to teach you how to do is what about all those distractions that we are, that are not related to technology per se? What about all those pointless meetings that keep happening at your workplace? What about about the fact that we're working from home and our kids can be a distraction. We love them to death, but they can be a crazy distraction while we're working from home. What do we do about that? I show you step-by-step step how to hack back all of these external triggers. And then finally, the fourth step is to prevent distraction with PACs utilize what's called a pre-commitment device. And this has been studied for centuries, frankly. And these are steps that we can take as the last line of defense, as the firewall against distraction. We make sure that we make plans today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. One of the seminal messages of the book is that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That if we wait to the last minute, we're going to lose. And this applies to all sorts of impulsive decisions, whether it's an impulse to get distracted, whether it's an impulse to smoke that cigarette. If it's in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If it's the impulse to eat that piece of chocolate cake when you're on a diet, if the chocolate cake is on the fork, you're going to eat it. If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, of course, it's going to be the first thing you reach for in the morning before you even say hello to your loved one because you have waited too long. If you wait till the last minute, they will get you. But if you plan ahead, if you take steps today, there is no distraction that we cannot overcome. So the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. And what about the cell phones that so many people will crawl into bed and rather than relax and get ready for sleep, they constantly check email, they flip through the news, all the things that cause sleeplessness, restlessness, a lack of REM sleep, and people wonder why they're victims of their own habits this way. 
What is it that people can do an example of this? Because you write about this in the book and you talk about how you and your wife would do the same thing and it, it had all sorts of effects that weren't desired. Yeah, yeah. This was definitely a problem that we faced. And it's it's interesting because it definitely touches on all four of the parts of this model. My wife and I noticed that for years, we were going to bed later and later, even though we knew who doesn't know how important sleep is, right? We all know this. We've read books about it. We've read studies about it. We tell our kids that, oh, you need to go to bed on time. We all know that you have to get enough rest. Why don't we get enough rest? Because we're watching Netflix shows. We're scrolling Facebook. We're checking that one last email. We're doing all this stuff that, oh, we're so busy. Yeah, we're putzing around, right? Let's be honest. And we found that in our own relationship, we were doing this as well, that we were going to bed later and later. And so as I started to write this book and I learned these techniques that have been studied for, for decades now that I collated into this model, we started utilizing these four tactics, starting with mastering the internal triggers. One of the major reasons that people stay up too late, that they don't go to bed, that they check their devices is called revenge scrolling. Revenge scrolling is when we feel a lack of power in our life and our one act of rebelliousness, our one act of agency and control is I can stay up as late as I want. This is the one thing I control. And it sounds silly because it's so self-defeating, but it's the, it exerts that sense of agency and control. It sounds so seventh grade. And we all, and, and many of us do it. And if we don't recognize that is what we are doing, that the number one reason we do things against our better interests. And as you mentioned, Plato talked about this 2,500 years before the iPhone, right? This is not a new phenomenon. We do things against our better judgment and we always have. It's not because of the technology, but realizing the reason we do things against our better interests, the reason we don't do what we say we're going to do is because because we don't feel like it. I don't feel like going to the gym. I don't feel like eating. I don't feel like working on that big project. I don't feel like making my sales calls. I don't feel like doing the things I know I should do. The problem is not that we don't know what to do. We all know what to do. And if you don't know what to do, Google the answers right there. The problem is that we don't know how to get out of our own way. We don't know how to stop getting distracted. So step number one, we got to deal with those feelings. We have to master the internal triggers. And you don't have to go see a psychiatrist. I can show you exactly how to master those internal triggers. So that's step number two. Step number one. Step number two is that we made time for traction. We set a bedtime, for God's sakes. We told our daughter every night, oh, you have to go to bed on time. But we were darn hypocrites and we didn't have our own bedtime. So we set a bedtime for ourselves. It's in our calendar. Then we remove the external triggers. We don't sleep next to our cell phones anymore. We removed everything that beeps, buzzes, or boops from the bedroom. The bedroom is now a sacred space. And finally, and perhaps most impactful, was what we did in regard to this pact. Here's what we did. I went to the hardware store and I bought bought us a $5 outlet timer. This outlet timer will turn on or off whatever you plug into it at a certain time of day or night. And so in our household, every night, our internet router and our screens all shut off the same time every night. Now we've done this for several years now. Now we don't even need it anymore. Now we all know, okay, internet's going to shut off real quick, every, finish everything you need to do because the internet's going to go off soon. But as a last line of defense to remind us, oh, if you're not offline, the internet's going to shut off. You've got to wrap up everything you need to do. That provides that pact, that that promise, that pre-commitment that we have made in advance so that we don't keep doing something we don't want to do. Now, of course, could I unplug my router and take it out of the internet router thing and plug it back in? Of course I could. But now I got to go underneath my desk. I got to do a bunch of mess here. It just automates it. Exactly, exactly. It helps me think, wait a minute, is this actually important? Do I really need to stay up late or do I need to take care of my body and get some rest? And what I love about that is that you create an environment that supports your values. It's something that's so important and 
it takes just so little effort to think of buying a, a timer. My timer in my bedroom goes on at a certain time and goes off at 11 o'clock because that's it. If I'm sitting there reading, it's lights out. That's my reminder to go off. But I didn't think about the router. When my son was a teenager, that would have been a genius. Now they actually have these internet routers at the time. They didn't have them, but now they actually sell these internet routers that come with this built in. You can actually program it into the internet router to, to and then you have to put in a passcode if you want to use it later. Fabulous. Nir, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? Let's do it. I'm excited. At the beginning of the interview, we talked about someone who inspired you growing up and you talked about your dad and your mom and their their challenges and how they rose up against them time and time again as entrepreneurs in the country. When you were a teenager, Nir, what's a song that you loved? A song that I loved? Wow. I was actually a big Bon Jovi fan. Can you believe that? Shot through the heart and you're... I don't know why that song came up. It's just a song I liked around that time. You give love <laughs> a, a bad, bad name. name. Indistractable is a condition of modern society. What do you use each week to get the word out about being indistractable for those who want to be, who do want to gain more traction, even if they may not know the term? Yeah. So I use a, a bunch of different mediums. The most effective is my blog. I have about 100,000 blog subscribers who I send a weekly email to, some article as well as a, a roundup of various articles I think are worth reading. And so that's the medium that I think is the most intimate for, for people who, who like my work, whether it's my first book about how to build habit forming products. So business people who are looking to engage and retain their customers. That's my first book, Hooked. And my second book, Indistractable. So I vacillate between these two topics so that people can build good habits with the products that they're building, as well as break the bad habits. Of course, these are different products, right? You can build a good habit with a local business. You can build a good habit with an app that helps you exercise or read more or connect with family while still breaking the bad habits around the behaviors you don't want in your life. Who's been a terrific business mentor to you? So my best business mentor, without a doubt, has been my wife. So we've started three companies together. And that's not for everyone, but it works really well for us. We complement each other really nicely. And I trust everything she does. She's so much more talented than I am. And so it's been amazing to to be her business partner and vice versa over the years. I, my first image of your wife is the picture from the book with her wearing the <laughs> don't distract me crown. <laughs> you remember that? Cool. Yeah. The, the concentration crown, we call it. Yeah. And what it does is simply signals to people, I'm busy doing something. I'm working on a task that if you if it's not urgent, I'd prefer to not be interrupted to give myself that time. And it's something that you also point out in the book that people could just use cards or lights or signals, anything to just say whether you're in an approachable mode or a non-approachable mode to give yourself that block of time to work on. That's right. In a hardcover version of the book, there's actually a cardstock uh, thing that you pull out of the book. It comes in every copy. You pull it out, you fold it into thirds, and you can put it on your computer monitor for when we go back into the office. You can also print one out that there's a link in the book to send you to that URL. You can print it out yourself. But we found that didn't really work with our daughter, especially when she was younger. So that's where the concentration crown came in handy. It's this $5 little wreath that she puts on her head that lights up so you really can't miss it. And so our daughter knows every time she sees mommy with the concentration crown, that means that she can't be interrupted. And it works really well with husbands as, uh, as it does. It's been husband tested. That's the real mark of success there. Exactly. <laughs> it works really well. What advice would you give people who are thinking of bringing their teams back to the office in terms of making the transition with all of the changes that take place? How do you use the idea of gaining traction in the office as opposed to at home where you have a lot of competing priorities during the day? What's What approach would you take to having that conversation with the business leader making those decisions now? Yeah, so it's interesting. There's a whole section in the book on how to build an indistractable workplace. And it turns out what the, the research reveals is that distraction in the workplace is not about the technology you implement. It's about the 
company culture you have. And the three big tips I would give folks, I know we're running out of time, so I'll just give you the, the highlight here. Number one is you have to build an environment of psychological safety, that people have to feel like they can talk about these problems. Because the problem of distraction at work is that we can't talk about the problem of distraction at work. That is the real problem, that if people don't feel safe to raise their hand and say, hey, you know what? This is not working out for me. The fact that I'm constantly interrupted, the fact that I can't think throughout my day because I constantly am expected to respond to stuff means I can't do my best work. It's the fact they can't raise that concern that is the real source of the problem. So number one is what we call psychological safety. Number two is a forum to talk about these problems. And number three, and most importantly, is to set an example. That I can't tell you how many companies I get called into where the boss says, you know what, we really have a problem with distraction. People don't prioritize properly. They're getting distracted by too many emails and meetings. I need you to help me build an indistractable workplace. They hire me for these big, expensive workshops. And I get to these workshops and who's using their cell phone in the back of the room in the middle of the damn meeting? It's the big boss. They're so important. They can't put their phone away. And people don't realize that you set the example as a parent, as a business leader, culture flows downhill. People look to leadership to see the culture around how to use their devices, how responsive people should be. And so we have to set that value for our companies. Here, you've been so helpful and generous today with sharing your time and your insights. You've talked about the idea of making sure that we use our attention in the same way and budget it the same way that we spend our dollars. And you talked about the importance of how forethought is really a key idea in determining whether you're being distracted or working on task. The opposite of distraction is not focused it's traction. And traction means that you're working in the direction of what you said you're going to do, whatever it is that you chose to do with that particular time. You talked about the idea of leadership. The key idea of leadership is prioritization and everything else is just details. And that time management is really pain management. When people really get that idea, it'll change everything. So near for these reasons and so many more, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Oh, my pleasure. This was great. Thank you so much. Before we say goodbye for now, tell me where is that we could find out more about you and your work online and your blog. Sure, yes. Yeah. So my blog is nearandfar.com, but near is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R and far.com. And uh, the book again is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Before we say goodbye for now, in the show notes of this episode, we're going to link to your website, your blog, as well as your two books on Amazon, as well as all of your social media to make it super easy for people listening to this episode to follow you and find out more about what's going on in your world. And I just want to say to listeners that we have different laws and rules, such as Occam's razor, when there are different explanations for how a phenomenon occurs, the simplest one is often the most correct. And what I'd like to do today is propose Uriel's guide rail, which says that never attribute to laziness or incompetence that which could be attributed to distraction. There you go. I love it. And I call it Uriel's guide rail because it prevents you from going off the road into an area that will damage relationships if you disregard it. That's so true. And it's incredible how many things are a result of distraction, how many poor processes and mistakes that we make that we don't realize are simply a function of us not focusing properly. So Uriel, author of Indistract how to control your attention and choose your life. Thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. 
Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.